From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. There's a lot of people out there who need the barriers taken down, and I think sometimes cookbooks uh, and certainly cooking shows that present these kind of absurd challenges actually put barriers up to cooking. Hi, you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart. Now, you just heard from Cal Peternal. Cal is the author of three cookbooks, but you might also know him from his two-decade-long tenure leading the kitchen at Chez Panisse, Alice Waters' famed Berkeley restaurant. His latest book is Almonds, Anchovies, and Pancetta, his three favorite ingredients. Now, in today's episode, we're talking with Cal about why he focused his latest book on these three pantry staples, about his new podcast, Cooking by Ear, and how Chez Panisse is producing some of the top cookbook authors and food voices in the country. Plus, in this episode, you don't want to miss, we're headed into the kitchen to cook from Cal's book. We're headed out to Sonoma to hear about a powerful relief effort following last fall's fires. And of course, we're checking in with Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. All that to come today. Join us this week at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen as we talk cookbooks with Cal Peternell. Hi, Cal. How are you? Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Oh, yeah. Thanks for uh, inviting me in. Of course. So we're here to talk about your third cookbook, um, which is titled Almonds, Anchovies, and Pancetta, a vegetarian cookbook, kind of, um, which we'll get to. But let's start with those three ingredients then. What drew you to that list of ingredients, almond, anchovies, and pancetta? You know, actually, the idea came about at an event I was doing um, for my last cookbook at the 92nd Street Y and someone asked me what's happening like what's going on next and I was like I don't know but I've always wanted to open a restaurant that's just called anchovies and pancetta because that's the only kind of meat we serve there okay you know that we serve lots of vegetables and grains and beans and greens and pasta but we just use meat as like a seasoning and my agent was actually, and my editor were both at that talk and I, I said and that might be a good cookbook too and I looked at them and they were like (laughs) They gave me the thumbs up. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's that idea of, and it's the way I like to eat. And I think it's the way a lot of people like to eat now and the way people have eaten them for a long time, especially if you don't have the means to buy yourself a big fish or a whole roast. Um, you make a small amount of meat go a long way by thinking of it as a seasoning and, um, you know, cooking your vegetables and grains and greens and beans with a little bit of smoked ham or a little bit of cured fish. Uh, and then, you know, almonds are in there because they have similar kind of fat levels to uh, those um, cured meats. And they also can be used in that way to like add a certain, a little bit of heft to a dish because of the fat and also just like a flavor accent. And luckily, because almonds are crunchy, they add like a textural thing as well. Right. Yeah. Now, you're not always or in most cases, advocating that these things all work together, right? You're sort of identifying that these three things add something to a dish. Can you talk a little bit about what they add to dishes? And you sort of divide the book into three large chapters around each of these ingredients. Right. Each each one of those, uh, the nuts, the cured pork, and the cured fishes each has their own chapter of 20, 20 recipes. And I don't think there's one that has all three of those together. Yeah. I tried to think about all three of those coming together Mm, doesn't really happen, but right. um, so I know yeah. obviously anchovies and pancetta certainly add a salty component, which right. is important. But what do each of those three things sort of contribute to the dishes mm-hmm. and the recipes you've developed? Um, 
Well, they do bring salt, especially the anchovies and pancetta, but I think they also bring, um, what people are calling these days umami, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of rich mouthfeel and a kind of depth of flavor, uh, that you can't just get by just shaking in more salt. Right. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about this lately and, I feel like, um, and th- this is a theory that I haven't completely worked out yet, but okay. I'll, I'll, I'll test it out on you. All right. Uh, is that you're actually bringing in, um, an element of time. And I don't mean the herb because there's time contained in those ingredients that, and I guess in a way there's time con- contained in every food, right? Because sure. it was in the ground for a season or on the tree for, for a season, but especially things like, um, cured fish and pork have that additional, like after they're harvested, they require time to get to where they are. Right. And then that time, when you add them to your dish, you're kind of adding that. And so you get that depth of flavor that you otherwise might be able to get through like long cooking. And I love to long cook a pork shoulder for a few hours or um, a piece of meat for a long time, but right. as almost like a shortcut, like this little flavor shortcut, you can get that similar kind of depth and meatiness by just adding a little of something that's already got the time component in it kind of. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think anchovies are a great example of that. You know, you have a can of anchovies in your pantry somewhere and it takes all of 30 seconds to rip it open and add it to the pan. Yeah. But anchovies tend to be, um, for some people, sort of a stumbling block, right? Mm-hmm. I think they get a bad rap for a lot of American home cooks. And you even note in the introduction to the anchovy chapter that you're hoping people who are reading this might already be, a, and I don't know if this is a word you made up, but a anchovophile, <laughs> yeah. right? A lover of anchovies. But if not, if you're an anchovy curious or a hater, as yeah. you say, you are there um, as their guide, savior, and pusherman. Yeah. So how are you making anchovies accessible, delicious, and desirable to people who sort of have that sort of connotation of anchovies as being something that's not as delicious? I, you know, I think actually everyone does love anchovies. Mm-hmm. They just don't, they, it hasn't been presented them to them in the right way yet. And I think it's uh, this kind of, cycle that happens is that someone opens the can of anchovies nobody really wants to eat it so the can sits around for a while and they really get worse as they sit around and so by the time they try it again now they're really terrible and then they just go okay forget it i'm never going to eat those again so if you have that open can that's been in your fridge for a while just get rid of that yeah get a fresh can and um i found even children like we ma- i like to make this salad where i slice raw vegetables really thin and you can sort of do it in any season there's some vegetable that's delicious thinly sliced really crunchy and dressed with like a little almost like a caesar dressing okay um but like an anchovy and garlic dressing mm-hmm. that even like people who you think might not like it, like children, will go for it, not really knowing that there's an anchovy in there, but just knowing that there's something so delicious and that like fills their mouth with flavor. So I think that's one way that, that starting with like a, a new can of anchovies can be uh, a revelation. Yeah. And then, you know, all over the world, they're using, uh, you know, in Asia, Asian countries are using fish sauce or dried shrimp and Japan, they're using, you know, smoked and dried, um, fish to shave. In Italy, they use, uh, bonito, which is dried fish roe. Right. Um, I think that 
Americans need to get on board with the like the amount of flavor and deliciousness that can be delivered by uh, a cured fish. I love to eat just I'll eat an anchovy out of the can and like I'm all in. Yeah. But if you're not quite, there's a bunch of recipes where the anchovies kind of melt in. Right. And they're in there. They're providing that thing. But they maybe don't necessarily give you that. If you have a bad connotation about anchovies, you won't really access that through these dishes, which is a good thing. And then, you know, it's like a gateway to anchovies. Then later you're going to be just opening cans and eating them like while you're sitting on the subway. Right. Yeah, it's totally true. I think for people who don't cook with anchovies a lot, the cooking process where they sort of almost just dissolve into nothing but salt is really eye-opening for a lot of people. And I mean, like you said, the um, dressings and, and, you know, like Uh the... The one that everyone, I mean, everyone loves a Caesar salad. Right. And I think probably a lot of people don't really know that there's anchovies in there. Right. But there are. Yeah. And that's part of what makes it so irresistible. Yeah. At least if it's a good Caesar dressing. Exactly. Um, So another of the ingredients, almonds, also sometimes gets a certain connotation around it and maybe not in the same sort of distaste that anchovies gets, but as a snack. So you talk about this in the header or the introduction to the almonds chapter, and you talk about President Barack Obama eating seven almonds a night as a snack. And a lot of the recipes in here sort of work to dispel the perhaps myth that some people hold that almonds are a snack. Can you talk about some of the ways that you use almonds in the recipes to, you know, add body, add texture, add some earthiness or meatiness? Sure. Uh, the thing that comes to mind right away is we did, um, recently I have a podcast called, um, cooking Mm -hmm. by ear. Yeah. And, uh, where we, we teach a guest to cook and it's, uh, it's formatted so you can cook along at home in real time. And we did one with, um, with one of our guests, Bob, the drag queen that'll be in, in season two. And he at the time was, uh, eating a vegan diet. And so we made two soups with him that both have almonds. I wouldn't say you don't, you wouldn't know they were there, but you might maybe miss it. Uh, they add, they add a body to it and they add like a nutty flavor that almonds, that almonds have. But, right. And one of them is called Ajo Blanco, which is a classic, um, like a white gazpacho. Yeah. Uh, that's cucumbers and garlic and, and then almonds and they're, and you, the, both the soups we made with him, you uh, end up putting them in a blender. The Ajo Blanco you eat cold traditionally with grapes on top, but we put a little bit of, um, melon on there, mm. but the, you know, the almonds are ground in so that they're not so much a texture thing as they are a flavor. Well, they're textural, but not in a crunchy way. They kind of thicken the soup a little bit and sure. give it, um, some body. And then the other soup is one we made with, um, carrots and saffron and a little coriander and almonds. Uh, both of them, are, of course, are vegan because he was vegan. So the right. base is water, not any kind of meat stock. You cook it till it's all soft in the blender and the almonds really give it this wonderful kind of richness that makes you not miss the chicken stock that you might have made your chicken soup with, or your carrot soup with anyway. This is your third cookbook. So your first two cookbooks um, are a recipe for cooking and 12 recipes. And your first cookbook actually came about, I think, because your oldest son wanted to learn to cook as he was going out to college. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And so how has your um, cookbook process changed over time? They're all very, at least your first two cookbooks in particular, are very focused on teaching home cooks how to cook Mm -hmm. and being really accessible. This is a little bit more recipe focused, a little less technique focused. Mm -hmm. But how has your process sort of changed through these three cookbooks? 
Well, like you say, the, yeah, the first 112 recipes was born out of a desire to get my son to cook, which was a shared desire. He had asked yeah. me to teach him some lessons and I did. And then he went away and he was calling me and I thought, you know, why don't I just write you a little booklet of 12 recipes? Sure. And then that turned into um, the book that we published. And I, in that book, especially, I tried to keep a vision of him in my mind so that I could have the, the voice that I wanted throughout. And the vision was he's in a tiny kitchen in Brooklyn with like, uh, you know, maybe it's like an electric stove and he just has one pot and the mostly has to shop at the store down the street and he doesn't have a lot of money. So how can I encourage him and not let those things become barriers, but maybe actually become things that you can work with to kind of make food that's appropriate for your your situation. And I think that there's a lot of people out there who need the barriers taken down. And I think sometimes cookbooks uh, and certainly cooking shows that present these kind of absurd challenges actually put barriers up to cooking that people just feel like, okay, well, I don't have access to the most beautiful farmer's market, so I'm not going to be able to make this. Or, you know, I don't have the sous vide machine or whatever it is. So I kind of, you know, encourage people you know, you should pay attention to your ingredients. If you can't get great ones, try and get better ones. Talk to your shopkeeper. Look around for for better options. And, you know, if you only have a terrible pan, well, maybe you should start to save up for a good one or look in yard sales or whatever. But But you shouldn't not cook because you don't have those things now. You should cook tonight and just think about how you might need to get – need to upgrade in the long run. And then the second book was a little bit – I realized that Although I cook a lot of the, I do in fact cook a lot of the ingredients in 12 recipes at home. When I'm having, um, guests for dinner, or even sometimes if it's just the family and I just feel like I'm into it, I cook a different style of food. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm the kind of person that will really take pleasure in spending the entire afternoon in the kitchen because I know I'm having a dinner party and just really make a multi course meal that I put a lot of, I make dessert and everything. And I thought, and that's the way, uh, at the time when I was, when I was cooking at Chez Panisse, that's of course the way I was cooking there. Sure. So I thought, well, maybe I should write, this should be a, a book that's reflects my, a little more elaborate, um, cooking that I do at home. And I do point out in the introduction that a lot of those, there's grace notes all throughout that can be left out if you don't have time. And the, in fact, the title refers to the, the notion that, you know, you may have a recipe for the dish that you're cooking, but there's a recipe for the act of cooking itself that takes into account not just the ingredients you have, like the carrots and onions and celery, but also who's coming to dinner, how much time do you have, how tired are you, how many people are going to help you clean up, how broke or flush are you, and all those things should come together to make it so the thing you're making tonight is the right thing. It's in the context of your life. And I think sometimes what throws people about cooking is they think, oh, we're having a dinner party. I'm going to make that fantastic dish I read about that I've never made before. Right. And then they just stress out and it's yeah. like a nightmare for them. And that's, you know, you're not really getting the recipe right if you're doing that. Right. So It's the classic rule of never make something for a dinner party you haven't made before. The first time. Right, yeah. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Cal Peternell. And now it's time for Into the Kitchen, where Salt and Spine executive producer Allison Sullivan and I cook from this week's book. 
Hey, Brian. Hey, Allison. How are you? Good. So um, what are we making in the kitchen today? Yeah, so we're making a few recipes from Cal's cookbook, Almonds, Anchovies, and Pancetta. Um, we just made a little bit earlier today the muhamra, so I want to talk about that first. Yes, let's do it. Um, which, as you know, is a dip. What's usually in it? So traditionally, muhamra is made with red peppers. That's always sort of the key component, roasted, peeled, and pureed. But there's always a little bit more as well. And traditionally, there's walnuts. Now, of course, Cal's book is about almonds. So he substitutes almonds. So it's an almond and red pepper muhamra. So we started, and let's flash back a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. to roasting the red peppers. We just did it over uh, the gas flame on the top of the stove. You could, of course, do it in the oven um, under your broiler, but you really want to char them all mm-hmm. over, uh, get them nice and roasted. Yeah, I love the little like pop crackle that makes when yes. they're um, over the open flame. It's really cool. Yes. Really important or really easy trick is to throw them in a bowl Um, and cover it with plastic wrap or throw them in a paper bag if you have one and just sort of seal it up a bit. That'll steam them. So then the skin starts to loosen, the charred black skin starts to loosen, and it'll peel off really easily. It is worth roasting your own. You can, of course, buy roasted red peppers in a jar. It's worth roasting your own. The flavor is so much better. So in addition to the red pepper, the roasted red pepper, and the almonds in this case, there's also some spice in here, of course. We have cumin seeds or red pepper flakes. Um, We have some garlic and some breadcrumbs, which give it a little bit of substance. And then he sweetens it up a bit with some pomegranate molasses and then adds a little tartness with some red wine vinegar and then some olive oil. All goes in the food processor, zip zip. I have to say, this was the first time I've used pomegranate molasses. Yeah, what do you think? I love it. I I haven't yet, but I'm definitely going to go out and buy some. Totally. It lasts for quite a while. It's great in the fridge. You can do so much with it. Mm -hmm. So we zipped it all up in the food processor and now we've got this nice roasted red pepper dip. Um, We're going to eat it with some pita, um, but of course you could eat it with toast or slather it on whatever you'd like. It's just a really delicious sort of condiment. And then we ended on a sweet note in in our In the Kitchen series today. Definitely my favorite of the recipes that we tried from Cal. I (laughs) loved this one. Yeah, so these were the cookies that we made. They're the almond butter cookies with chocolate. You remember as a child the peanut butter cookies, right? Yes, Growing I up. loved them. Yes, they're soft. They're usually rolled in sugar. This is a very similar cookie. Mm-hmm. So instead of the peanut butter, he uses almond butter, of course. Um, and then there's some new additions. So you might remember them being sort of um, chunk-free, we could say. <laughs> a nice, nice soft cookie. And these are. They're really soft. But we also have chopped up toasted almonds in the mix. And then he also adds four ounces of chopped dark chocolate. And again, just like a traditional peanut butter, cookie. We roll them into ping pong sized balls. They get rolled in granulated sugar and pressed down before we bake them. And one thing I would point out is that it's very similar to the peanut butter cookie, but like almonds, you definitely get more of that nutty taste, which was really good. Yeah, there's a, it's a little more complex, I would say, than a peanut butter cookie, um, but harkens back to those flavors. And this recipe is just amazing because it's a one bowl cookie recipe. This was so great. I loved being in the kitchen today. We also want to know, what are you guys at home cooking? Please share on social media, tag us, use hashtag talk cookbooks. We want to see how you're using Cal's recipes in your own kitchens. 
If you're a regular listener, you know that Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen, the recreational cooking school in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. Of course, we love the Civic Kitchen's open, airy, and welcoming space. It's really perfect for learning different techniques, cuisines, and styles from their roster of expert teachers. And personally, I love the wonderfully curated cookbook wall, which is the backdrop of all Salt and Spine interviews. Don't miss upcoming classes. Like food and wine pairing made easy and fall farmers market. You can find a list of all the Civic Kitchen's classes and sign up at civickitchensf.com. This month marks one year since a series of fires ravaged California's wine country, burning nearly 250,000 acres, leaving more than 40 people dead and thousands of people homeless. We're headed now to Sonoma, California, where Allison is talking with Sonder Bernstein of The Girl in the Fig about delicious new chapters, a relief effort led by Sandra and local food writer Kathleen Hill. Earlier this year, people across the country donated more than 10,000 cookbooks to delicious new chapters, and an event in April gave fire victims the chance to rebuild their lost cookbook collections. Sandra, thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. How did the idea come about to launch delicious new chapters to collect cookbooks for survivors of the wine country fires? We had gotten a call from a catering client to do a holiday party back in December. Um, she was someone who lost their home, who had did a annual party with all her friends. And it would usually be, you know, cookbooks and they would cook together and it was, you know, all women. And she was like, Sandra, I obviously lost my home and actually was the supervisor of the county. And so they had about a dozen people and I had put a dozen cookbooks together as like a holiday gift and a thank you for coming. And the women started talking and they were like, Oh my God, thank you for this. This is my first book since I lost all my books. And it was like, Oh my God. This is something I could, I could make something happen with this because they were so touched about my cookbook. Like I can imagine like if it was something that had been passed down, you know, or old or cherished or, you know, what could I do? And I'm like, wow, I know so many people in the food business. This should be really easy to figure out a way to get people a collection back. Did you anticipate the reaction of just the amount of donations that you received? I had no idea. I mean, I thought we would get a lot. I thought we would get like a couple thousand, but it just didn't stop. Just really people blown, you know, just like, wow, this is something easy that I can do to help. Um, you know, it's not like you have to write a big check that you don't have or you understand the compassion of something that means so much, but it's easy to get on board with. And I really liked it from that aspect that anybody could help. I can't fix everything that's happening, but if I could shed happiness to somebody, then that's all I care about. Can you tell me a little bit about the response from survivors when they come into your warehouse? People were like blown away and it was an extremely emotional day. A lot of tears, a lot of stories, um, a lot of hugging. And, you know, this one woman found a book that had, it was cooking, but it also had like gifts that you could make for people and instructions for this quilt in it. She's like, Oh my God, I got this for my wedding. We made this quilt. I lost the quilt. I lost the book. Now I can make the quilt again. 
I mean, it was stories like that. And another person who had someone that passed away had a huge cookbook collection that they donated to the cause and they had book plates made in honor of the woman who passed away, you know, saying she would love for you to have this book. And like, so people really got, um, personal about it and, the joy of cooking went immediately. You know, we had maybe 15 copies all different years. And um, they I could have given a thousand away that day. And why is something as simple as a cookbook so important for someone who has lost everything in something like a fire? Cookbooks are so personal that they, you know, evoke memory. And I think that's the biggest thing is that Food is something that is so shared among, you know, communities or families or tribes or, um, it kind of creates who you may be as a person or your belief system in, in this way. But then it also tags your memories, your, like your best family dinners or your first date that you cooked for your husband or um, a recipe that you search for in another country because you were there on a trip. It's really cool to see the impact that a cookbook can have on someone's life. Yeah, I think so too. Well, Sandra, thank you so much for sitting down and, and telling me about uh, Delicious New Chapters. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. What a wonderful story. Thank you, Allison. And now back to our conversation with Cal Peternell. That's really an important sort of genre of cookbooks, the sort of how to cook cookbooks, the the books that really focus on the basics and the core recipes and the core techniques. And you mentioned Chez Panisse. Obviously, you worked at Chez Panisse, Alice Waters, famed Berkeley restaurant for over two decades. Um, and there's a number of chefs who came out of Chez Panisse who have done similar sort of books, right? So we had recently Samin Nostrat, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, but you also, you know, have David Leibovitz, you have um, Deborah Madison, um, David you, Tannis. you have David Tannis, you have Suzanne Goen, who have like all spent time at Chez Panisse. Is there something about the the way that you all approach food at Chez Panisse with sort of the simplicity and the California style of cooking that sort of has lent itself to many of you going on to produce these cookbooks that are not, you know, sort of hoity restaurant cookbooks, but really accessible and relatable books for home cooks? I think so. I think for whatever reason, the cooks that I know at Chez Panisse are the kind, they're not the kind of cooks who, if you say like, Oh, what do you, what do you cook at home? Or if you were to look in their refrigerator, all you'd see is like a bottle of champagne, some bottled water and <laughs> like a, I don't know, a foie gras that someone gave them or something. Right. So these are people these who are, are just like us. They're just like us. Yeah. They're <laughs> awesome. like, they find pleasure in cooking, whether it's in a restaurant or at home. And I think they want to like share that. They want other people to discover that kind of the pleasure that, you know, I think there's a lot of people who have been turned on to the idea that, that there's a lot of value in coming together around the table and eating and drinking together is a great place to connect and, and that there's, there can be pleasure to be found there. Right. But I think for myself and some of the other um, authors that you mentioned, we're trying to get people to see that their pleasure can start in the kitchen. Mm. That cooking can be, I mean, sometimes it's a chore and sometimes you don't have enough time. And sure. There's all that. Sometimes that can be a place where you can center yourself and just cook by yourself and have your quiet time and actually make something with your hands. 
instead of living in a virtual world that we all increasingly live in. You mentioned your podcast. Let's talk about that for, for a minute. So it's called Cooking by Ear. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're about to launch into your second season. Your yep. first season um, was really great, opened with um, Francis McDormand, closed with Big Frida. You sort of bring these great personalities into the kitchen or go to their kitchens and cook with people. One thing that really struck me as I was looking back at some of your cookbooks and also listening to your podcast, one, your your most recent book has no photos. There's just illustrations that you and your family have done. Um, your older books have a couple photos, but aren't very photo heavy. And it feels sort of like the concept of your podcast where you're actually encouraging listeners to cook along with you to be in the kitchen and in real time have a a dish made is not all that similar from a cookbook that doesn't have a lot of visuals, right? Was that an interesting sort of dynamic to have to approach? How do I, you know, explain to people just who are listening through their headphones, the right way to chop this onion or the right way to incorporate these ingredients? We're, you know, we've kind of grown with um, cooking by ear and we're realizing ways in which audio can succeed where, you know, I think if people want to learn something and they look it up online, they're probably mostly going to click on a video, mm-hmm. like how to right. make a meringue or whatever. Right. Right. Uh, so we kind of thought like, well, what do, what can we bring through that, through audio that's special to audio that, that is better in yeah. audio. And the answer for us is that our show is a combination of cooking lesson and interview show. Mm-hmm. And so we're bringing in guests who are interesting and have an interesting story to tell. And we're getting at that story through their kitchen. And also once we're in there, some of the awkwardness that can exist in social situations, especially the pressure of like an interview falls away because you're both busy cutting up the onions or picking the parsley or whatever it is. And so you kind of distract yourself a little bit from your own inhibitions. I think that's probably true about life too, right? Like bring people together in the kitchen and start cooking and and the inhibitions sort of go away a little bit and you can be more comfortable and natural with each other. Especially if you pour them a little wine. That too. Yeah. 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 Well, we could talk forever about food storytelling, but I want to ask if there were other cookbooks um, that inspired you uh, in the course of writing any of your three cookbooks. Yeah. I mean, I have always loved um, Fergus Henderson's books mm-hmm. because of their funny voice. Yeah. And I'm not as keen on like uh, Ophel as he certainly is. Yeah. But I just, I just love the voice in those books. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard Olney for similar reasons, although I, I learned a lot about cooking basic cooking from him but again his his voice that carries throughout the book uh is pretty wonderful mm-hmm. i do love gabriel hamilton and uh, she had a genius piece about french fries in the in the times that was really touching i don't know if you've read that but i haven't go no. back and read okay. it because it's she does something um that and other authors do as well that uh and th- there's a whole list of people uh mostly women paul wolfert alice waters mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um MFK Fisher, right. uh, whose name I'm, uh, the English, um, classic English cookbook author from like mid middle of the century. Um, uh, Jane Grigson. No, I love her, but it's, that's not who I'm thinking of. Anyway. Um, I love that the, the way Gabriel Hamilton and other restaurant reviewers that I've liked over the years will, um, ostensibly the piece is about, say French fries, mm-hmm. but really it's about something else, right. something deeper, something that we all connect to. And to get to that place through food, I think is uh, an amazing skill and something that I 
certainly aspire to. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what all the best food and cookbook writers do. And by the way, it's Elizabeth David. Yes, yes. Thank you. Um, so I, I think your podcast is so interesting because we're talking, we're a show about cookbooks. We're always thinking about the future of cookbooks. Is, is a podcast a future cookbook, right? Like you're actually providing recipes to a listener. You're cooking along in real time. Mm-hmm. Someone has a completed dish. Is that a form of a cookbook? I guess it is. Yeah. It's, um, a lot of people say that they listen to cooking by ear where they listen to their other podcasts, which is like running or in the car Uh or on the train or something. Yeah. But a lot of people do what it's designed to do uh, or what it's partly designed to do because it's partly is designed as a interview to kind of get deep into and maybe get to places where other interviews haven't gotten with Mm -hmm. certain with our guests. But it's also um, meant to teach you to cook. And um, people have told me that they – learn the recipe in a different way than they do when they're cooking from a cookbook because they're kind of have to in a way that that they they've told me that if they know they can always go to that cookbook for the recipe that they don't really have to learn it because it's there in the cookbook and of course you could listen to the podcast again but i think people pay attention a little more because it's happening in real time and they really listen and maybe because the visual piece of it isn't there so you don't have to keep flipping the pages to look at the, just that physically that you don't have to do that. You right. can just, you have your headphones on or you have your speaker and that they've feel like they've learned the, the recipe in a, a little bit deeper way than they would have if they were um, reading it out of a book. Yeah. So we uh, play a little game at the end of all of our interviews. So we thought we'd play a little game with you be uh, following the theme of almonds, anchovies and pancetta. Mm-hmm. And I know that you don't have recipes that combine those three ingredients but let's say you did. Um, and I'm going to give you two ingredients. Uh, and I want you to come up with a third ingredient that you think is like the clincher there. Okay. What else do you throw in the mix? Um, so we'll start with, we'll start easy and maybe get a little harder. We'll okay. see. Um, mushrooms, leeks, and what? Mushrooms, leeks, and coriander. Okay. Seeds. Okay. Um, how about marshmallow fluff, peanut butter, and... Cheez-Its. Cheez-Its. I like it. Interesting. That one's one's kind of fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) There's some saltiness in there. I don't know. I feel like it could work. (laughs) Um, Okay. Maybe this one's easy. Apples, cheese, and... Oh, wow. Um, Well, right away, I think about beer. Okay. Um, Yeah. Off the top of my head. Uh, Apples, cheese, but what else would be better than that? Bacon. Bacon. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I could see like little yeah apple cheese bacon roll ups yeah I mean I like, think grilled cheese apple and bacon yeah in the middle there right all right last one um so there was a great New York Times piece on ranch dressing um and its role in supporting pizza so pizza ranch and what's the third thing we just like throw in on top there <laughs> I've never had that pizza ranch you haven't thing. oh yeah. you have to uh, yeah. yeah do you put it right on the pizza or you dip your piece into I mean you the- can do either there are pizza pizzas that come with it sort of drizzled on already it's not cooked on though no usually not cooked on um but the classic is like you just pull your bottle of ranch out of the fridge put it on your plate when you like got take out pizza and dunk it in okay well i'm gonna maybe this is obvious but i worked in a restaurant that's long gone now but um called bizu that was um, uh-huh. south of market and we would make this kind of it was a pizza but it was really thin like a flatbread that was spread with um it was spread with uh, like a, a caramelized onion mixture that maybe actually had a little anchovy and um, and olives in it. Okay. And but 
and we didn't serve it this way, but this was the cook snack was to have, um, a salad like on top of that pizza. So you could like kind of, you know, like the way they put arugula on right. um, pizzas. Sure. So I guess that would be my third thing would be like a sat, like maybe you dress the, you, you have like a really crunchy, like escarole salad that's dressed with ranch and then you throw that on top of the pizza. All right. Yeah. I'm going to try that. All right. Well, thanks so much, Kyle. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. And now we have a special excerpt from Cal Peter Nell's podcast, Cooking by Ear. You're about to hear part of Cal's conversation with actress Frances McDormand from the first episode of the first season as the two cook risotto together. All right. So when I'm now I'm going to the chanterelles, fresh yeah. chanterelles picked in the woods. I always love when anybody brings mushrooms to me. I always say, where'd you get them? And there's always that look on their face like, you think I'm going to tell you? Yeah. Nobody around here will ever tell you. I have one neighbor who took me to one place on our property (laughs) there weren't any okay cookers at home Fran is cutting the chanterelles into quarter inch slices since you're cutting things up now's a good time to prepare the asparagus cut the spears into one inch lengths there's nothing like I I read this article when I was in college called the acoustics of of, uh, acoustic acoustical that, that acoustics actually are a sense Kind of like it's a combination of of sound and feel, and that slicing mushrooms on a cutting board with a sharp knife is a central pleasure, mm-hmm. and it truly is. <gasps> Gorgeous, right? It feels so good. It's like the same thing they they likened it to walking through um, crisp leaves in the fall, a pile of crisp leaves, and the way that the sound and the way you kick them. That was Cal Peternell talking with actress Frances McDormand on his podcast, Cooking by Ear, where you can cook along in your kitchen while listening to interviews with his guests. Just like our show, you can subscribe to Cooking by Ear on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. We're headed now to Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack in this week's From the Vault. Hi, Celia. Hey, Brian. So we just sat down with Cal Peternell to talk about his latest book, Almonds, Anchovies, and Pancetta. And I'm hoping, yes, I'm hoping you have something to share with us today. Well, sure. I'm excited to see this book. I didn't even know that it was out yet, so I'll have to take a look. But I love his past books, and I pretty much love everything that the people from Chez Panisse have written and done, and they all sort of are on a similar family tree, let's put it that way. Um, They really, you know, they cook so much from the heart. There Mm. there are certain chefs that cook from the head, uh, you know, say the people coming out of Noma or El Bui, and there are people that cook from the heart. And the Alice Waters line of of cooks and chefs really are from the heart. So roast chicken, Mm. you know, warm, cozy meals that are going to be healthy, but simple. And it sounds like Cal has really uh, taken that up and especially right now there's a huge movement towards vegetables as a main dish or at least meat as sort of just a smaller side sure uh so i think he's a perfect person to explore that because um his flavors are so pure and his cooking techniques are so simple yeah and i think to be able to translate that for the home cook too after being behind the stove at chez panisse for several decades for a couple of decades to be able to in now his third cookbook continue to sort of make that california cuisine that Alice Water style of cooking accessible. Exactly. exactly. And David Tannis, too, right. who cooked with him and has also written a number of cookbooks, his last one being all about market 
cooking and especially vegetables. Uh, and he writes a column about vegetables in the New York Times. So they're all sort of, you know, going in this direction, which is really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Celia. My pleasure. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from this episode on our website, saltandspine.com. You'll find featured recipes and hear Cal reading an excerpt from his cookbook. Plus, you can enter our weekly giveaway to win a copy of Almonds, Anchovies, and Pancetta. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Our program today was produced by Allison Sullivan and myself. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books, and to Sandra Bernstein. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Every weekday, I cover a bunch of stuff. Policies, social issues, news of the day, things you actually give a damn about. All right? But if you're listening to the podcast on the Facebook platform, I need you to make a switch. All right? Because that feature is going away on June 3rd. All right? June 3rd, that feature will go away. So I need you to jump on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcast to make sure that I can still keep bringing you this indisputable content. All right, let's make it happen. Don't miss an episode of Indisputable. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.